Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. Welcome back. Today's conversation is one the universe brought to my inbox and my attention when the world is thinking and wondering about peace in our time. Just this week, you've probably heard or read headlines that seem to jump from another era, right out of the pages of our history books. Negotiations, summits, talks, strained diplomacy, war games, and alliances tested. It all leaves us with an ever-evolving understanding about peace and conflict in our world. And my guest on this episode is someone who thinks a great deal about peace in our time. Steve Killalay is a global philanthropist and founder of the Institute for Economics and Peace. Steve's work lies squarely in the intersection of policy, philanthropy, and purposeful public discourse. His research looks at the golden thread between business, peace, and economic development, and what he calls positive peace, a model that embraces the attitudes, institutions, and structures required to create and sustain peaceful societies in our world. Steve's work has been recognized by the United Nations, the World Bank, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, and Jimmy Carter. Steve is the creative force behind the Global Peace Index, a study launched in May 2007, and a fascinating report that everyone should read to learn where the world's nations and regions rank in peacefulness. I hope you enjoy this captivating discussion with a man of many talents and passions, from surfing to entrepreneurship and lifelong learning and always paying it forward. Enjoy the listen. So, Steve, where did you start your career? Well, actually, the background's actually as a computer programmer. And in some ways, that was got there somewhat by accident. So I'd left school fairly early, actually, and sort of spent my early part of my life traveling the world surfing and sort of went to some great places. I stayed, lived, lived with an Indonesian family for a, a period of time. Cost me 40 cents for the room, 20 cents a day for the meals. And that was quite telling for me later on in life. But 
What happened is I got to about 25 and I thought, well, it's time to settle down. And there were three things which went through my head which I thought would be really good to do. One was to take people on adventure holidays around the world, like it'd be whitewater rafting down the Zambezi, uh, walking through the uh, the Himalayas, uh, up through up in Nepal with Mustang or somewhere like that. Doing a uh, working as a social worker, that's another thing which I thought would be really good. First one I dismissed because I figured, well, I'd only be able to do that to 35 and be getting too old. But in retrospect, that was a mistake. I would have ended up probably creating a business of it. The second one, uh, I thought I just wouldn't be able to earn enough money to have a reasonable lifestyle. And the third one, which was just intuitive, was go and become a computer programmer. And so we're going back to the very, very early 70s now. Mm. And that stage, there was no such thing as a PC. In fact, Microsoft hadn't even been heard of. And right. the cheapest computers were about five million bucks. And so I went along, did an aptitude test with, an IQ, with a computer company. They thought I had a fairly decent IQ. So they trained me up. And so from there, I got into computing. And from there, sort of, and programming was something I seemed to be good at. So that was great. And then through time, I invented two programs and then launched two companies off the back of those programs. The first one ended up eventually public listed on NASDAQ and the second on the Australian Stock Exchange. And those companies were global in nature. So I spent my life travelling the world. Uh, and look, up to COVID, I think for the 40 years prior to that, the longest I'd stayed still in Sydney, which is my home, was three months. And wow. so from those, like, yeah, so yeah, guess, I guess I'm getting into the story of my life a little bit, but I'll keep going for a minute or so, do it, that's okay. Please, yeah. So what happened then is sort of established a couple of successful companies, uh, made a lot of money. So then I set up a family foundation to work with the poorest of the poor. And that was basically because I just could see the effects of poverty from my surfing and living in some of the most remote parts in the world, chasing the best waves in the world. And so, so it was to work with the poorest of the poor, to do interventions which were substantially life-changing with the aim of touching as many people as possible. And that last one really is bang for the buck, okay, just to be clear, clear on it. Mm -hmm. And so I think that you Foundation now has done over 220 projects, got about 3.6 million direct beneficiaries, uh, and that's not a marketing number, that's a real number. So it's really had really had a lot of impact. And then it would have been, gee, it would have been 18 years ago, I was walking through northeast Kivu in the Congo, which is one of the more violent places in the world, and I started to think, what's the opposite of all these stressed-out nations I'm spending time in? What are the most peaceful nations? Got back to Sydney, searched the internet, couldn't find a thing. And then I thought, well, it'd be really good to rank the nations of the world by their peace force. That's how the Global Peace Index was born. But quite a profound question comes out of that because if a simple business guy, such as myself, can be walking through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world, but it hasn't been done, then how much do we actually really know about peace? I guess my business background, and it's called the mathematical background, so I just think, well, if you can't measure something, can you truly understand it? If you can't measure it, how do you know where actions are helping you or hinder you in achieving your goals? You simply don't. Yeah, I really, I think that's really fascinating, the aspect of if you can't measure it, how can you change it, right? How do you know where you're at and how do you know where you want to go? Um, I'm curious, uh, you mentioned, obviously, surfing twice. 
it strikes me, this might be an assumption, you have a very uh, unique relationship with the ocean. Would that be would that be a fair statement? Yeah, I think that's a very good statement. Look, where I live in Sydney, I walk out my back door and I'm onto one of the best surfing beaches in Sydney. So there's the, so I spent most of my life out there surfing. So I'm in my early 70s now, I'm 73 to be precise. And probably stopped surfing uh, yeah, about 65, but he uh, uh, spent yeah, so much of my life in the water. And like, yeah, I just love it. I just love it. Yeah, there's yeah. something about uh, yeah, surfing. It's really physically exerting, but it doesn't damage you because you're doing it all in the water, unless you get hit by your surfboard, of course. Uh, right. And in one with nature, you, you just get some great feelings of the beauty uh, and the sense of riding a wave. It's ecstatic. You know, when you ride a good hard wave, it's ecstatic. The feeling. Yeah, and I'm and I'm also you know you paint such a vivid picture of going through the world and realizing or experiencing the change that is conflict in the world, and then the change that is uh, moments of peace. Um, that obviously led to you starting this organization, the Institute for Economics and Peace. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that came to you? Um, obviously, you mentioned there were there were these sort of pivotal uh, exchanges with with populations in the world, but it's it's not often that an entrepreneur and then an innovator and then a tech person says, "Hey, I'm going to shift everything towards this deep philanthropy." Um, and deep research to change the world. How did how did that come about? Yeah, well, look, I don't. In one area, I don't really analyze myself too deeply. Sort of, a lot of people say, "Well, what motivates you?" I don't really know. I think it's a, it comes from very deep within our psyche. So, and I think part of it is like yeah, yeah. One of the things I've always done well is being able to let's say look at the canvas of life and find out where the white spaces are, the parts which haven't been painted, if you like, and that sort of probably referred to that to the first two projects, the programs I created uh, to launch the companies off. And I guess that's what I can see with peace. So what I realised once I did, look, this is a classic entrepreneurial journey. I started out with a question in the Congo, got back to Sydney, searched the internet, couldn't find anything, went and spoke with a mate of mine who then at that stage from the Sydney Peace Foundation and the Sydney Peace and Conflict Centre. said, what are the most peaceful nations in the world over a coffee? He started to rattle a number off and saying, look, you're taking them off the top of your head. Where's the study? Couldn't find mm-hmm. a study. And I thought, well, that's worth doing. So I then decided to went out around and met with a number of the your top uh, your, your groups in the world uh, working on peace. They all thought it was a good idea. There was nothing there. So I did it. Now being well into it, I thought, well, this is probably uh, it's not something I want to sit on. I should do a PR campaign around it, okay? And this is well into developing the index, because originally I was just going to do it and hand it over to a university. Mm-hmm. And so then I hired a PR group in uh, London, uh, and we got a couple of billion dollars, sorry, a couple of billion media impressions when we did the launch. And I thought, wow, people are really interested in this. Then the more I looked at it, the more I realised how little we actually understood about peace. And mm-hmm. what I realised, uh, yeah, from then, well, there was something. There's, there's something a lot more here than just one index. 
And, and then I sort of went around to a number of universities. So I was thinking of creating a chair in a university and handing it over there. And I guess this is the entrepreneur in me. I couldn't see anyone who was really going to have the uh, flair to really publicise the thing and push it forward. And I could see it being maybe a nice piece of academic research, but it just sort of stay where it was. And so that's when I decided to create the Institute for Economics and Peace. So as you can see, it's a bit like an unfolding. I was going to use an analogy of a flower unfolding, but I thought that was a bit crass. But you get the idea. You get the idea. It's just a, it's a flow of consciousness that just moves on. And I think a lot of the time that's the way I work and just to sort of be, you follow my interests. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. It's one of the things that I think is very resonant in the world today, sort of the unfolding of people's ideas. And um, and maybe maybe it's because of the pandemic, pandemic. Maybe it's because people have slowed down. Maybe it's because people have a sense of mortality that they're starting to sort of let these ideas unfold in themselves, um, which which I think is, is a silver lining of a lot of... Um, sort of the solitude that people are in presently. One of the things I'm also curious about, as you said, like the concept of peace is in one sense universal, but it's also so individual to every single person's instance. Um, I'm, when you first did those those indexes and, and those research pieces, um, was it hard to get data? Was it hard to get a definition? What, what were the components that made up the Global Peace Index? I think the first one was coming up with a definition of peace, okay? And so to get an appropriate definition of peace, you've got to get a definition, you want to get it truly accepted, you've got to come up with a definition which most people will agree with, okay? And so we use the absence of violence or fear of violence as the definition of peace. And then we looked and like definitions are incredibly important. If you haven't got the definitions, then I, I, I don't know what you, 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 you sort of you're you're on a, building a house on moving sand, I guess. Uh, uh, so that definition is really important. Is that then determines what you're going to what 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 the measures you're going to pick up are. So then we looked at it and ended up with three domains we wanted to measure. So we, the first one was let's say internal safety and security. So that's measures of the, uh, uh, things like uh, homicide rates, violent crime, number of police per 100,000 population, number of people incarcerated, availability of small weapons, violent demonstrations, terrorism attacks, etc. Then we looked at ongoing conflict, which is pretty self-explanatory, and militarisation, which is fairly self-explanatory as well. And brought the three of them together to create an index. And so that's the basis of Global Peace Index now, and it's it's a good index. I, I, I think it's pretty pretty reflective of the uh, yeah, peace. But what it does is it doesn't tell you anything about the factors which create peace. Okay, and right. we call that positive peace. So then to arrive at that, we use a whole lot of the statistical analysis. And we've got about 50,000 different data sets, indexes, app journal surveys we uh, use to find the factors which are most closely associated with highly peaceful societies. And that we then call positive peace. Now, that's another full conversation on its own. So mm -hmm. that definition of that is the attitude, institutions and structures 
which create and sustain a peaceful society. So there's two definitions of peace. Now, there are all sorts of other definitions of peace, and the definition you use, you really got to think about what your outcome is going to be. So now those two definitions are excellent. They'd be useless if we were now trying to analyse your internal peace. Right. So well, my internal peace. So if we're doing that, then we might come back to the absence of afflictive emotion. Well, that's the definition I'd use, which is pretty close to a, your, your Eastern concept of the inner peace, if you like. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a politician, okay, uh, you don't want to get too caught up here. You're... Your definition will be peace is when the guns fall silent and the war starts. And like we all can remember that George Bush Jr. on one of the American battleships declaring peace in Iraq. Okay, so yeah, so the yeah, so the definition of peace depends on how what how how you want to use it. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting, which you probably saw um, today. You know, I just I just read a report about um, NATO troops actually being in Estonia, Lithuania, Poland, um, you know, on the on the borders of Russia. Um, and obviously what's happening in Ukraine right now um, and Ukraine's a country I've been to a number of times. Um, it's a place I have many friends. I've spent a lot of time there. My spouse was in the Peace Corps for oh. uh, two years in Ukraine. Um, and so these are. These are things I think a lot about, and I'm curious from the standpoint and, you know, not looking for an official position here, but obviously the world is in a really interesting place right now when it comes to the concept of peace. And some of the things we're seeing now almost echo a little bit back to World War II games, you know, and some of the the politics and the negotiations. And I'm curious, just how does it, how does it look from your vantage point based on all the things that you've studied I, I don't know if they're pulling up the Global Peace Index and thinking about these things at the table between Macron and Putin. Um, but, you know, the work that you've done has been has been endorsed by the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, Jimmy Carter. But I, I'm just curious. I know there's a lot in there, but any any thoughts on where the world is right now and the work you do? Yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's look, I think it's really complex. So if we come back to a, uh, the Ukraine and sort of you've got this dynamic between Russia, the US, and a number of the Western nations, uh, which had been going on since, let's say, the end of the Second World War. Go back longer if you go back, uh, but we'll, we'll say the end of the Second World War. And then, sort of, the, so then, like NATO was very, very relevant in those days. You got, went back, and then you had the fall of the USSR. So many people in the, uh, uh, Russia uh, would see that as a watershed moment of the, where the true Russia was broken up. So we look at it, and you went into Belarus, for example, most 75% of the people there speak Russian in their home, okay? So if you went to the eastern part of the Ukraine, it's the same thing there. A lot of people in the Ukraine speak Russian in their home. So now, they say, yeah, so, and I think... For Russia, and you've got to understand, invaded three times in the last, let's say, 150 years. So for them, uh, having neutral states on their border was very, very important. So if the Ukraine joined NATO and then they had missiles on their border, for them that would be terribly worrying. Uh, So look, in my view, like I could easily be wrong, I don't think they're going to end up in war. 
Okay, I don't think they're going to end up in war. I think uh, this is more about uh, Russia trying to make a statement, trying to draw a line, uh, and and I'm not privy to any of it. But I imagine there's a whole lot of uh, uh, back negotiations going along uh, about sort of getting some sort of status quo. Now, for Russia to invade the Ukraine, they estimate to do it fully, they need about 130, 140,000 troops. So they're really at about 80,000 80, as of about two weeks ago. So, But they are moving more divisions up to the border now. But you've also got Beijing going on and you've got the leaders of a lot of countries out of Eastern Europe because a lot of them got great skiing nations over there competing. So the leaders are there. Uh, Putin's there and he's showing that he's a, a person they should be talking to. So now... Also, look, there's another couple of weeks in which if they go after, and he's probably not going to do it during the Beijing Olympics, Olympics because he's got Xi Jinping there and he wouldn't want to embarrass. He's one of his closest partners in the middle of their major PR event of the year. So that won't happen while the Olympics are on. Then you've got a couple of weeks before you've got spring setting in and then the ground gets really slushy. And it's very, very hard to take military weapons like armoured cars and tanks and move them through slushy fields. So that would then lead another couple of months before you start to get to summer, before there'd be another opportunity to invade. So, look, I, don't, I, I honestly don't think it's going to happen. I think it's more about sort of trying to make a statement, trying to get the uh, draw a line in the sand. I think one of the other things there too is like uh, NATO massively overpowers Russia, like massively. Even the French, what they spend on the military is more than the Russians spend. But on the other hand, as the Russians are a very a, a, a unified and significant force with a lot of experience, European countries, the members of NATO, although they've got an alliance which NATO is to defend each other, they haven't. They're not actually a unified fighting force. They may do exercises to keep together, but you've got the French uh, uh, army, you've got the uh, Italian army, you've got the uh, British army, German army, Dutch army, and on it goes. So getting a coordination out of them uh, would be would, would, is not the. It's, it'd be harder than what it actually seems from here. So there's a few thoughts on it, but I'm hardly right. an expert on any of this stuff, Bill, and uh, I certainly have got no no official views on anything. Of course, of course. I, I mean, it's just a fascinating time to be alive, for one. Um, you know, I actually spent, I spent four years in Russia um, during my high school years. Mm -hmm. um, we actually moved to Russia right after communism fell, and we, we had lived in Poland right wow. after communism fell as well. So it's fascinating to watch um, what's happening in the world from that vantage point of, um, as, a, as a young you know, teenager at the time, witnessing um, cultures changing and um, governments changing and traditions changing and seeing kind of where we're at today. So I was, I was just curious about that, given also the standpoint of how much you've studied peace, uh, peace in our time. And you've written this, this wonderful book uh, called Peace in the Age of Chaos, which I think is kind of where we all feel right now, uh, be it in our personal lives, our work lives, or on a global scale. 
Um, so we'd love for you to talk a little bit about the book, um, kind of why you wrote it, um, what your hope is and, and, and how it finds its way into the hands of people, um, uh, possibly through something like this podcast. Sure. Okay. No, that's great. But look, gee, I'd love to hear your story, Bill, but I realize oh. it's, we're talking my story, not yours. So maybe some other time I might interview you about the, sure. that'd be fascinating. That's a fascinating time you would have spent in Russia. I've lived, I've lived in a couple of yeah. really interesting, I mean, not only that, but my, my beginnings were in Tehran, Iran in 1978 wow. as, as an American born in, uh, in in Tehran, when martial law was declared, you remember obviously what was going on there at the time. So I've, I do have this really interesting pattern and past of revolutions and um, peace, <laughs> as it as is defined. Would be happy to share with you in the wow, future. Wow! Wow! Okay. All right. Some other time. Some other time. Uh, yeah. So peace in the age of chaos. So look. Uh, yeah, so it's got. A few different stories weaving through it. One is a bit of my personal journey to peace. So it covers a number of the experiences which strung out of my family foundation, the charitable foundation, uh, uh, working on development and working with things like the rehabilitation of child soldiers. And so it's got a number of a lot of those personal experiences which shaped my views of peace. Secondly, uh, it's got this entrepreneurial story about uh, uh, about sort of just the creation of a global think tank. Okay, and so it's got the entrepreneurial story in there as well. So that's two of the themes to it. The third theme, as it comes down, sort of covers the research which we've done, but not in a massively academic way. It's it's, it's reasonable bit of rigor in it, but it's not what I call academically difficult to read, okay, because it's aimed at the average well-educated person. And so it's got it's, it's got the research there as well. But finally, and what's the most important thing, is the concept that sort of if we look at the major issues facing humanity today, they're global in nature. They're things like climate change and decreasing biodiversity, full use of the fresh water on the planet. But I guess underpinning all them, they have a population and a range of other things. So unless we have a world which is basically peaceful, we'll never get the level of trust, cooperation or inclusiveness necessary to solve these problems. Therefore, I'd say peace is a prerequisite for the survival of society as we know it in the 21st century. I guess, in my opinion, that's different than any other epoch in human history. Uh, I guess, in the past, peace was the domain of altruistic. In the 21st century, it's literally in everyone's self-interest. The other thing which comes across in the book is this concept of the, like we're living within systems, but the way mm-hmm. we run our societies aren't systemic, okay? They're not systemic at all. But we're living within systems. Unless we can start to grasp that societies are systems and our social systems are part of bigger systems like the ecology, for example, we're never going to be able to get the right level of solutions. And that's a change in mindset. So if people are interested in that stuff, read the book. This will explain. And it's a bit hard to put across in a podcast, but uh, we can sure. try but, it's the, uh, it, the the philosophical differences between that approach and the way we way we think generally. Even when we think we're thinking systems, it's quite profound. 
Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate the fact that you talk about kind of the systems thinking. One of the systems that I think we probably have overlooked for too long is the ecology, is is the system of nature. Um, I remember a particular documentary that I watched, um, I want to say during 2020, it was called um, My Octopus Teacher. I don't know if you ever saw it. Look, The Octopus Teacher, I think, was the best documentary I've seen in the last couple of years. What blew me away was how intelligent the octopus was, how intelligent, and only lived for one year. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was so profound when I watched it and and above and beyond just the times we're in, but the connection that was made and the intelligence and the the gentleness that it taught a human. And and in some ways it reconnected that human back to their own core sense of, as you described, peace and um and knowing. Um and I just think there's so much we're at this pivotal point where we learn, sadly, after the large things like fires, where we learn after disaster, where we learn that there are systems within nature that have been going on a lot longer than we have. And rather than try and corral them, why don't we learn from them? Yeah, yeah. Look, we've, we, look, one of the, when, yeah, oh, launching the system stuff, I suppose, saying we're going there, Bill. But, uh, but uh, one of the facts which blows me away, if we look at the biomass of all mammals, I'm just talking mammals, but the biomass of all mammals on the planet, 60% of them is livestock, 36% is human, and 4% is other mammals. Doesn't, isn't there something out of whack, okay? Something yeah. massively out of whack, okay? Massively out of whack. And we, look, we, we, we've really got to we, uh, work out how we're going to be live on a sustainable planet. Uh, and we've probably got some period of time to go before we pass a tipping point. But once you pass a tipping point, you can't go back to what it was before. That's just mm-hmm. not the way systems work. You end up in a new system, a new age. It's a bit like uh, you, you, you politicians, let's say in the States, like uh, President Trump saying, yeah, let's make America great again. And if you made America great again, it'd be a different America because it's a different system. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. back to the philosophical difference between the way we go about running our societies systems, even when we're talking about our health systems or education systems. So great breakthroughs with empiricism, okay? Empiricism came about through the study of the physical world, okay? So you study something, okay? There's a cause. It has an effect, okay? But the effect is distinct from the cause. And empiricism meant we could take the physical world and then we could study it. So you could create an experiment, you get a result, and that would be repeatable for anyone else to see. So this concept of cause and effect, cause and effect, okay, it's built in. And so, but it, or it comes from the study of physics. Also, you can, and with empiricism, a physical world, you can take something and break it down to small and small and small and small and small and small and small components to understand it. It's a bit like a clock. You take it apart, you put it back together a bit. Motor car, take it apart, pull it back together again. And sort of you look at the structure of a structure of a rock, you break it down into its composite parts and you could put it back together and it's still be the same rock. 
Now, systems are profoundly different. Uh, so the concept of cause and effect, okay? So now one, one thing. So we've got this concept of cause and effect just building to our subconscious. That's how we walk because we understand mm -hmm. the physiology of it and it's built right into our Right in, right in, right in, right into the depths of our subconscious. So, but if you look into system, the effect comes back and influences the cause. Okay. So, it, 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 and so think of two political parties engaged in a in an election. One postures something, the other postures back against it. The first party comes back, changes its posture again. Think of this conversation, okay? And we both adjust as we're moving through the conversation rather than just going down a line, uh, which mm -hmm. I was thinking of. So look at, let's say, uh, you know, things within society, simple things like, let's say, uh, and we'll look at positive peace and three of the structures of positive peace. So you've got well-functioning government, uh, free flow of information, which can be epitomised by the free press, and corruption. Does... Government affect corruption, or does corruption affect government? Does corruption affect the press, or does the press affect the perceptions of corruption? And does mm -hmm. the government control the press and what it says, or does the press influence what the government does? You can't separate any of it. So to really understand things, we have to really think, really think about it differently, because you think most about political structures, what they do is here's a problem, okay, there's a cause, let's go fix the cause, okay? And the problem is it changes and changes under us. And if you move into systems, you've got things like uh, your, your, your steady state or homeostasis. Most systems are really trying to stay the same, okay? There's what look at it within society, you've got all these things built in to create to mm -hmm. maintain a status quo, okay? And things are always changing. You can't really maintain a status quo. But you've got a lot in there to try and maintain these the status quos. You've also got things like encoded norms. So let's say you've got an input into the system, and we'll say it might be the level of crime. And if it's within certain bounds, nothing happens. If it's outside a certain bound, the system then tries to adjust to bring it back into normal. What's really, uh, you know, think of COVID. It's an excellent example of that. We, our, and our health systems were pretty much moving along down a track, okay, with a homeostasis or a steady state around them. COVID hit, and look at the way society's adjusted to try and get back to that steady state. Right. So uh, yeah, they're just some of some of the things. And unless we can start to really sort of look at our societal systems, and that the book of the Peace and Nature Chaos has a lot on that. Unless we can come back and really understand that, I don't think we're going to get the solutions we need. Yeah, I, I think the the ability to first challenge the sense of. Um, cause and effect and and to to stop pointing fingers i mean some of this is is a blame game and i think the other piece of it is you know there's a term that gets tossed around a lot in business but also in politics and maybe even society and it's you know the trust quotient right what is the equation that that gets you to trust well everybody's trust quotient could be a little bit different but at the source of it are probably some of these key elements that we can all agree on um, and that sense of trusting someone or being trusted by another human 
I think is really at the core of of peace. Without trust, you cannot really forge into that, um, into those peaceful partnerships. And one of the areas that you focus on, I read in the, the annual report from 2021 uh, in IEP, was the ambassador program that you've designed um, and you deliver kind of through training. I would love for you to talk a little bit about that because obviously in COVID, it's different. You're doing it mostly online. But what is the intent of that program to, to build out ambassadors? Um, and what is your, your, your ultimate hope for it? Sure. Okay. Now, that's great. So we, once we sort of developed all these frameworks, we then thought, well, it'd be good to go and train some people on it. So we run twice a year these ambassador training courses, and they run virtually. They're run globally. We run one which sort of covers the... Uh, Asia, Europe, uh, Asia, Asia, Europe, Africa. We did another one which runs through the Americas. And at this stage now, we're trained about three, three and a half thousand people. And we've got the next training coming up in a couple of months. And we run special ones. We're running a special one in addition on top of that in Nigeria at the moment. Got about 400 people doing that. We ran one in Ethiopia about 12 months ago. And uh, that was about another 300. And so what we do is we train the ambassadors uh, in our products and then they've got the ability then to sort of go out and give presentations around it. Uh, and people find this re- really, really invigorating. Like if you're at the uh, university, you can go give a presentation on in the university. Uh, I've got a lot of Rotary clubs and members mm-hmm. who have a strategic relationship with Rotary. You can also understand how to run a, a positive piece, a, 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 a process as well. So you now understand you can use this in just a standard developmental project. You could use it in a classroom, in a school. Uh, you could use it in the whole of the school. You could use it in a, a, a club you were doing, just sort of a, looking at a specific a, a project you were doing. So. And so, for example, let's say we'll make something. No, we won't make something. We'll use a really real one. That's much better than a made-up one, isn't it? <laughs> so, so we did we did two trainings down in Uganda, okay? Uh, and so we probably trained, I don't know, 250 people. And the second the end of the second training, one of the guys, he, he was with one of the Rotary Clubs, and they had a, a literacy project into a, a really poor poor school in Uganda, okay? It's a rural area, and I mean, this is poor. This is poor than anything you can imagine. Well, maybe not for you, Bill. But, uh, yeah, but most people, this was really poor. And so... They've been running it for two years and hadn't really improved any of the literacy. So then they looked at doing it through the lens as a positive piece. So what you do is you take the literacy project and now you've got eight pillars. Let's ask questions around the pillars for what should you do, okay? And so so for well-functioning government, for example, what they did is they then involved the school elders, involved some of the elders in the surrounding communities, rural community to get everyone on board. Low levels of corruption, like things which were donated to the school, they create an infantry for, they now put a stamp on everything, and then they do an infantry check every three months. Acceptance of the rights of others. Uh, Now, there were two things which made massive changes, which I'm going to come to. 
But the first one was uh, they looked acceptance of the rights of others. I noticed a lot of girls weren't going to school for four days a month, and that was basically because they were menstruating. So they gave them sanitary pads and installed separate toilets for them. That brought them back into school. That also made them more focused on their education. We all know all the benefits coming from that. Another one was sort of a free flow of information. So they went on a radio station and started to talk about the school and everything which was happening in the school, which was really important, which we'll come to in a minute. The thing which made a really big difference was looking at the pillar good relationships with neighbours. So this, mm. which you never think would apply for a literacy program. But what happens, this is in a rural setting. So the kids at lunchtime would go out and raid a, uh, the fruit trees in the, uh, in the uh, surrounding uh, area, okay? And in these really poor places, simply because they were hungry. And so in these poor places, like every apple, a, uh, every orange, really mean something. So this was creating massive strife with the local community. So what they did then is they planted some fruit trees in the yard and then introduced the porridge program at lunchtime. This cost two, three cents a kid, okay? Maybe mm -hmm. four, but it's really, really not much at all. Then what happened is the grades in the school, where they used to have 30% the, of the kids getting in the top two grades in the district, it now jumped to 60%. Mm -hmm. The attendance rates at the school went up 150%. Uh -huh. And sort of what happened was they got out on the radio, they used the free flow of information pillar to talk about what they're doing. And then the parents realised if they send the kids to school, they'd get one meal taken care of. And these places, they're so poor, so the kids weren't getting any food at lunchtime. So they get to the afternoon, the brain would be lacking the nutrients to concentrate, and it was that mm -hmm. improvement in concentration which gave them the better grades. So you're starting to see the cyclic effect, and it's how you take the, take positive piece and you can apply it to anything. You can apply it yeah. to Microsoft, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> could even apply it to the canteen in Microsoft. <laughs> Forget right. Microsoft as a whole. <laughs> but... Uh, but uh, yeah, 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 so it's a, it, it, it's, a, it's a simplified version of taking what we've learned from studying societies and bringing it down. But uh, we also, the other thing we do, which anyone, anyone listening to this podcast can do it, is we have a positive, online positive piece of canopy. And so that's about a four hour course, which brings mm -hmm. across the fundamentals of positive peace. So now that's online, you just got to look up Positive Peace Academy and people will find mm -hmm. it. But that's, a, that, that's something which is really, really, really popular as well. We get about a 1,000 people at the moment a week doing it. That's great. That's really, really wonderful. I love, I love the, to your point around the cyclical, right? If we, if we make it easier for one person to do this, right? If we, if we nourish them, then they, they can think and they can uh, study better, which means that they, you know, it, it all feeds into this ecosystem as we talked about. Um, and, you know, one, one thing sort of strikes me as I, as I listen to you and you, and you touched on it a little bit, and it, it's sort of the last thing I'd love to ask you about. Um, there is so much wisdom of the elders that is being lost in this world right now. Um, even the stories that you're telling through this book, through the through podcasts, through things, it's, it's treasure because it's this concept of 
there are people of different generations, um, I believe, that aren't necessarily talking to each other, right? Um, but when they do, and the wisdom of the elders comes down, either in storytelling or instruction or teaching or mentorship, benefit usually comes of it. Um, and, and I'm curious, I, I don't see enough of that happening in the world. It sounds like you're, you're, you're taking that on through programs like the Ambassador, like the Positive Peace Academy. Um, is that, I'm, again, this is just sort of off the cuff here, but I, I think about this a lot because I grew up the benefit of wisdom of the elders and storytelling. And, and I come from a long line of storytellers on the Irish side. Um, I think that's something we need more in the world. I'm just curious your thoughts about that. You're doing that yourself, obviously, and your legacy and the work you're doing. I would just love your thoughts on that. Yeah, look, I certainly sort of, yeah, as you grow older, and as long as you're active and doing things, okay, you need the variety of experiences, you, you gain in wisdom. Uh, and certainly the knowledge I've got now is uh, you, you, so much more than when I was young. I look back on it and like was pretty naive and at 35. It's pretty naive. But so we're moving, we're in an age now where uh, you, 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 there's not a lot of uh, emphasis uh, you, you placed on uh, on experience, okay? It's, it's, it's a lot of it says a lot about empowering the young, and there's a lot of benefit in that. Uh, but it's the uh, but yeah, sort of be, be but means like a lot of the time now, the uh, because the young get more empowered, uh, yeah, they're less likely to listen to someone who's old, because yeah, 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 yeah. So if you went back into a lot of the other cultures, like Asian cultures, for example, or African cultures, the, uh, there's a preeminence put on age and wisdom, and I guess. Sort of, and uh, yeah, no, and look, I like if I share my story and it's a benefit to people, that's great. But you can quite often take a lot of your lessons and instill them down into a few facts. But one of the ones I regularly say, and this, this, this is my life, my life lesson, which you can part, which I'll pass on if you like, is the best way to success is to do the things you really enjoy. Okay, it's generally doing the things you enjoy. They're the things you got your best skills at. Okay, mm-hmm. and you enjoy it, so you put a lot more work into it than others. It's it's not such hard work, and that's a virtuous cycle. And so, at some point, you'll end up very, very good, better than everyone else. But you'll be the first person to realise it. Take a lot longer. There's a gap before other people see it. Mm-hmm. Now. What happens, okay, at that point in time, okay, you're already feeling pretty good about yourself. Other people now start to recognise it. And then there's another gap, it can be a little bit extensive, but there's another gap before you actually get the financial reward. And so there's a virtual cycle in all that. But a lot of people, uh, because they want to feel good about themselves, okay, go out and chase money. Chasing money they think other people are going to respect them for it, and then they'll feel good about themselves. But it really works the other way. And look, if you're chasing the money, a lot of the time you're going to end up in a crowded space. You're not going to end up in an innovative space. The right. innovative space comes about following your passion, your intuition on something other people can't see. And if you're on a really good thing, okay, and this is another lesson, if you're on a really good thing and it's original and new, not many people are going to see it. So there's mm-hmm. this concept of a thought leader, early adopters. And thought leaders, if you've got a really good idea, you've just got to tell them, they'll pick up on it, 
they can rift off it, they'll understand it, but they're about 1% of the society, okay? Now, thought leaders pick up on something, they can follow it on, do some, some early, early stuff on it. Then we've got early adopters who pick things up, which they can see which works, and run with them, okay? And then you've got the middle of the field, okay? And the middle of the field, then when they can see that's where everyone else is, it's pretty safe. They'll go there. And then you've got the laggards. They're the guys who, in the old days, never got sacked for buying IBM, okay? Yeah, Today it might be Microsoft. <laughs> you know? right. I used to work at IBM, though. Oh, so I did. You get it. You get it. I do, yeah. And so it's the, and like, there's nothing wrong, okay? A lot of your best directors and your best CEOs are in that follower stage, okay? Because yeah. that way they don't make mistakes, okay? And so mm -hmm. it's. But if you really want to change things, you've got to seek out the people who are the, who are the thought leaders or the, uh, the early adopters, and they're the ones who can pick up on your concepts and ideas. And so if people are telling you, no, that's not a good idea, don't listen to them because they're probably coming out of the wrong segment. Yeah, I really appreciate that that wisdom. Um, and it's, it, it really, um, it's very timely for, for, for many people, because as we talked about kind of before, I think there's a lot that's coming through people. And I think a lot of people are waking up and realizing they are an early adopter, but understand that comes with loneliness because you sometimes are out here and you look back and you say, but I don't have this crowd behind me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's true. Often innovators don't. Um, those that really change the world don't, but those that change the world follow their heart um, and you know, I, I, I say sometimes you can always depend on what is truest to you. Um, sometimes you just need to wait for the world to catch up. That's what I used to tell people. They'd say, how are you negotiating the things you're negotiating and who you are? And I was in the military and, you know, I was uh, I was closeted in the military. And how do you na navigate that? And I said, you know, I'm having the time of my life. I'm just waiting for the world to catch up. Well, I so. certainly think they have built because this is an excellent podcast and it's, Thank you. it's followed by tens of thousands of people. Thank you. I really appreciate uh, you sharing your wisdom, Steve, and the time. Um, where's the best place for people to learn more about you? Maybe go find out about the studies. Um, if you could tell us or point some of the listeners sure. to some of those yeah. resources. Okay, great. Well, sort of the, just if you want to buy the book, just search on Peace in the Age of Chaos and you'll find the multiple places where you can buy the second thing is if you go to our website, visionofhumanity.org, okay, it's really easy to remember, Vision of Humanity. Uh, got a whole lot of that. You can get all of our material there. We've got interactive maps on peace, all sorts of things. And then obviously there's the Positive Peace Academy. So just a search online for the Positive Peace Academy, we can get there from the Vision of Humanity also. And also Great. if you're interested in the Ambassador Program, uh, that's there. That's there as well. We're about to get that off the, the website as well. Thank you. Anytime I can end a podcast on the concept of the vision for humanity, I feel pretty good. So thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that very much, Steve. Um, go enjoy the amazing, beautiful uh, ocean that you're uh, right there at, and um, it's tomorrow where you're at. It's it's uh, the day before where I'm at. So is there anything I can look forward to tomorrow from your angle? <laughs> oh, well, look, uh, yeah, 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 
what can we look forward to tomorrow? Look, what I can tell you is that in all probability, it's probably going to be a warmer day than the prior mm -hmm. day. And that's okay. simply based on statistics. <laughs> a little more light and a little more warmth. I will yeah. look forward to that. Oh, yes. Yeah, so that's the other thing. It, the sun will rise earlier. <laughs> okay. I, I, that I look forward to. Thank you very much for your time, Steve. This is a really enjoyable conversation, and I would love to connect again and uh, share a little bit more of, of, of my own trails, if that's something. And I'm definitely personally going to look into the Positive Peace Academy. Um, obviously, I know there's partnerships that you have uh, with organizations that I'm involved with. I just think it's a really a valuable investment of time and, and look forward to echoing that out into the world. Great. I appreciate that, Bill. Really do. Yeah. Thanks very much for your time. As I reflect back on this discussion and listen again to this episode with Steve, I'm left thinking about hope in action and the truths that give us hope in our lives. Equally, I'm wondering about the grand question posed in Steve's research and his life's work. What are the factors that create peace? It's not something that everyone thinks about every day unless peace is threatened in their world and their way of life. And perhaps in our time, it is the question that deserves more airtime than what presently fills our headlines. Imagine for a moment if we spent more time understanding not our differences, but rather what makes us similar and keeps us going systemically while extending our hand to help another human being alongside us on this journey to change the world. Make sure to check out Steve's work at visionofhumanity.org to learn about Peace Academy and Positive Peace. Thanks for listening. And of course, if you have any feedback or suggestions, feel free to reach out at coffeeandchange.co, LinkedIn, or Instagram. <laughs>